You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey everyone, welcome to Page to Stage. A conversation with theater makers. We're your hosts. That's Brian. And that's Mary. This episode is part of our series on Six the Musical. In this series, we uncover the process behind the musical through our central question. What role does history play in the storytelling of Six, a show that uses the history mix as a device? We hope you enjoyed this episode. Welcome back to our brand new mini series, everybody. Um, the next several episodes that, you, that you'll be hearing from us over the course of the next few months or so will be focused around Six, the musical, um, which will be making its Broadway debut as Broadway reopens in the fall of 2021, which we're very excited about. As we mentioned in our last episode, episode 50, Six was actually the last show that Brian and I saw before the Broadway shutdown. It was a few days before their opening night. Um, we had such a blast, um, especially after chatting with Eliza Omen at BroadwayCon earlier last year. And so we're focusing this mini series on one central question, which is what role does history play in the storytelling of Six, a show that uses history mix as a device? And so we're thrilled to welcome Kevin McCollum here, who is the producer for the Broadway production of Six and several others, um, including uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, which is also coming back to Broadway this fall, um, and then Rent, In the Heights, many, many more. So Kevin, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself and sharing what your title is on the production of Six. Hello, nice to talk to you, Mary. I am Kevin McCollum. I am uh, the producer of Six on Broadway. And uh, that's my title. Uh, what I do is a little more complicated because no one really knows what a producer does. Uh, so I try to do that well, uh, I guess is all I can say about that against all odds. But uh, I'm very honored to be part of the Six family and uh, uh, great to be I'm here. I'm just wondering if you can give everybody just a little background on how you got involved with Six. Uh, I know it did have some history across the pond before you joined. Well, I had heard about it because um, I was co-producing with Kenny Wax uh, and Mark Bentley, The Play That Goes Wrong. And the show I brought over a number of years ago and played on Broadway and actually it's still playing off Broadway. And it was also affected by the shutdown. And uh, the other show that will be coming back, we haven't quite announced it yet, is also the play that goes wrong uh, coming out of the pandemic. We're playing at New World Stages. I came to it because Kenny uh, told me about this show he was working on that uh, in London and it wasn't quite ready for Broadway, he thought, but I would be interested in it. And it's about sort of this... It's about the lives of Henry VIII, but it's contemporary and these new writers and, and knew I was very interested in working with, with new writers and given my history of Rent Avenue Q in the Heights and first time writers. How familiar were you with the history before seeing the show or start, starting to work on it? As a well-educated American, I knew nothing. <laughs> and I was pretty, I'm pretty well educated. No, I actually knew, of course, of, you know, all the, all, I didn't know the names of everyone. I know, I, I knew of Van Berlin, uh, you know, uh, Parr, and, and I knew of some, uh, but I didn't, I didn't really appreciate the events and the order or the specificity of who these women in history were. And what they represented also 
for Reformation and, and other things in, in our Western culture. I took about a year and a half for me to go over there because I was busy producing here and, and working with Kenny on the play that goes wrong. And I had read a little bit about it. And so I said, you know, I got to come over and see this. And he was coming into the arts theater for the first time. And so I flew over primarily just to see the show. I, I watched it and I immediately was struck that this was a Broadway show. And I will say, because I live and breathe Broadway and I've been doing it for close to 30 years now as a producer, um, but I was an actor before, I kind of loved the scope of the epic nature of it and also the amount of accessibility. And I thought the music was terrific. And I was also someone who was used to new formats, having done Rent and Avenue Q, two shows that people said, why are you taking that to Broadway? That's quote unquote, not a Broadway show. And I, my line back usually is it might not be a Broadway show, but a Broadway show is a show that captures the public's imagination. So that's my requirement of a Broadway show. Love and that. this captures my imagination. So you were able to identify immediately that it was, it could be, and that it was fit to, to be on a Broadway stage, despite other producers attached to the project who weren't sure if it was right? Well, I, first of all, I, I don't want to say that that I'm smarter uh, than anyone on this because I'm not. We all kind of have to go by feel. I had a lot of experience on Broadway, so I, I felt the DNA was right for Broadway. Mm. My British partners, you know, they produced with me on Broadway, Kenny, but Andy Barnes uh, had never produced our show on Broadway, and George Stiles, wonderful composer, who is fourth producer, and the three of them came together and said, Kevin, we'd like you to, you know, shepherd this to North America for us and be your partner. And I was, you know, thrilled and I felt I took the responsibility very seriously. But part of the reason I think they they they, they chose me because I was, I was not the only person, I'm sure, who approached them was that I did have a vision for it to be on Broadway. I think it was intriguing to them, but it wasn't necessarily it, it, we'd have to get to Broadway. So therefore, as all good collaborations, we made a bit of a compromise, which I think was terrific, where we decided they had known Chris and Rick, who ran Chicago Shakes. And I had also gone to high school with Chris Henderson, who at Interfield, Illinois, who was uh, you know, the executive director and has been the executive director basically since it began with Barbara, who runs it with him. And I basically said, OK, let's go to Chicago Shakes. I had done Ride, Ride the Cyclone there and I had a really good experience there and I love the theater and it also you know what I love about it also it takes place on a pier it's, it's a place where tourists go so we uh, we made an arrangement to go to uh, Chicago Shakes to and, and audition in Chicago and audition in New York and and I said if we go there that'll give me time then to find a Broadway theater because they were pretty full up at the time but I felt confident if we opened it in this country it wouldn't be very much later that we would get to Broadway, you know, but they were appropriately like, you know, saying, well, let's see. But the, did, the thing I did convince them not to do is don't go to a church basement and, and do it very small. Like we have to we have to come in. Chicago Shakes has up to 700 seats and they were doing it in London in a 340 seat theater. And I said, we really can't afford the talent we need if we if we think that's small in America. So that was just part of the translation of, of different uh, ways of producing between the two countries. So when you first signed on as the producer with Six, or as a producer with Six, what were some of your first steps? I mean, next to 
find, you know, deciding on Chicago and obviously getting to cast are, are there conversations where you're meeting with the writers um, or are you talking with potential investors? And how are you balancing uh, your relationship as a Broadway producer with some of these co-producers from the UK? The first thing I did, obviously, is that my co-producers and I had, had a few meals together uh, to talk about who's already been attached, who who's contractually attached and who they think is right for the show. And very soon after that, I, uh, I met the writers and just learned a lot from Toby and Lucy and Jamie also, who's also the director with Lucy, uh, Jamie Armitage and uh, Lucy Moss and, and Toby. And I, I was just very, very taken by how not only smart they were, but how they wanted this show to exist. And, and they were very aware of, you know, that this was a you know female-driven story, even before when they wrote it, before Me Too, before anything, but that sometimes that the stories of powerful females are maligned, and not only today, but but throughout history. And I really, you know, I was raised by a single mom who was an amazing person, and you know, I learned a lot of my strength from her. Uh, and she passed away when I was 14, so I've been defined by kind of this orphan mentality where I've had to kind of make my way. And um, I loved how they approached their characters that they had created. And, and it wasn't about, well, we want to, you know, how much money do we make? Right? It wasn't that. It was purely about process, speaking of your podcast, uh, about the kind of generosity of spirit and humanity that they wanted their show to have. In so much, I learned a lot about how they audition. It's not like, thank you very much, one at a time. They bring in groups of, of women who who they're looking to be their queens. And they use the terminology of, you know, everyone is a queen. And this was before it even became, I started hearing it everywhere. They were using this terminology and, and words, you know, matter, especially when you're a storyteller in live theater. Uh, they matter in politics too, but, but unfortunately some people don't realize how much they matter. Uh, so that's one of the things I love about theater is that we're reminded how powerful words and storytelling are. So um, they had that ethic, and that excited me to work to work with uh, these very, very bright individuals that defied their age because they, they truly were wise people, and that got me really excited. I would say one of the most exciting things that I found about your career um, is that you have made a name out of yourself for really working with new writers and new creative teams and bringing them to Broadway and having them make their Broadway debut. Um, and I'm curious dating back to even just rent as being like the first, the earliest that, that comes to mind immediately what, what what have you learned along the way about bringing on new and potentially what other people might call greener uh, creative teams as they're making their Broadway debut what have you learned about about that process well it, it's hard to be make a generalization because they were all amazing wonderful people but Jonathan being the first Jonathan Larson for rent um, to have that experience was great. He he was he was at times stubborn, but he was super smart. And losing him on the final dress rehearsal before we were able to open the show off Broadway instilled with me also a sense of purpose that I have to be an advocate for young writers because Jonathan was trying to get people to help him who were more established than me before he and I crossed paths. And I did believe in him, and I did write the check, and I said, we're going to do it here at the New York Theater Workshop. And I had a booking business, uh, you know, I, I still have it, but at the time I was working at it full time. And booking is where you take shows and sell it to Cincinnati or Louisville or Buffalo or, you know, 
Dallas. And it was doing quite well. And But I really, I was an actor. I was a songwriter in college. And uh, this show just excited me. So I, I was also going through a divorce at the time. So I felt, look, I should just do what I believe in. And uh, we'll just see what happens. And, uh, and I was very excited to work with Jonathan. But when he passed, I was like, okay, I got to be that person who will read an unsolicited manuscript and take a chance on a director who had done a great production in Portland, but had never been on Broadway. And, 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 and whether it's director or writer, I am very proud. And even producers, like if a producer gives me an idea, he doesn't know even what a producer is, but they give me a piece of material or share a piece of material with me and I end up producing it. I always make sure that person is in the room if they're interested in being mentored or knowing what a producer does. So um, it's my ethic. I think it's because I'm a, I have an orphan mentality. Even though when my mom died, I moved in with my aunt and uncle, who were great people, and they had two daughters, both in the arts, Marcy Heisler, who's a wonderful lyricist, and Eileen Heisler, who's a brilliant uh, writer and created the middle for television. So um, it's interesting that Hassel created uh, a lot of people who are storytellers. Um, but uh, it's important to me, and I continue to do it. Uh, you know, I, I was, Mrs. Doubtfire uh, is, uh, is a show by people who have written a show before, only because the first show they did, uh, the Patrick Brothers and John O'Farrell, was uh, something rotten. And they were top of class for their other professions. Uh, Wayne was a, a songwriter, Carrie was a brilliant screenwriter, and John was a screenwriter and a novelist. But they had never written a Broadway musical. So I love bringing teams together because everything is fresh, anything is possible. There's not an agent saying, don't you know who you're talking to? And this has to happen before you get in a room. And I'm all about, hey, let's just get in the room and see what, let's, let's, let's play because that's why it's called a play. After that initial, uh, when you guys jumped over to the States with Six and did the North American uh, tour, when you're looking for a house for, it to be on Broadway. Can you talk about those discussions behind the scenes? I mean, we always hear about shows like just trying to get into a house and like that's the reason why they can't make it to Broadway on time and it's all about certain timing. Um, was that one of your main responsibilities uh, in your role as a producer on this production? I think externally, I think my partners and probably the authors said, well, that's my job. Uh, and, and yes, but that's not the most important thing. I'm a great believer that uh, you will always get a theater if the show captures the public's imagination. And I knew this show would do that. Um, I, I, I knew I was right. You know, you're always a little worried because uh, if you're not worried, you don't understand, you know, the risk reward ratios. And part of your skill is to know what the signs are. Uh, I had a show that, that opened a great show. In fact, it was Ride the Cyclone that opened at MCC, uh, sort of previewing the night Trump got elected. And given what our show was about, the election of Trump created a great pall over our audience. And the show was received very differently than any time before. So, so, so world events can affect the mood and attitude of an audience, depending on what your show is about. And uh, I remember being at the first preview, my daughter is at Northwestern, at the time, and she's now graduating as we speak in another week, so she'll graduate Northwestern. But and she came with me, and she was 20 at the time, 
or maybe 19. And um, after the show was over, it was like the first preview. She just turned and, and nodded her head and said, this is going to be amazing after she saw it. So, you know, once I, uh, once a, at that time, 57-year-old man and a 19-year-old uh, female uh, both have the same feeling about a show, that's a pretty good indication we're doing the right thing. And at that time, Chicago Shakes started the run with 500 seats because they have an accordion kind of audience. They can build it up for, or make it smaller depending on what kind of shows they do. It's a very flexible seating. Uh, by the time we closed, we had to add every seat possible, which was 717. And I think we went from a six-week run to a 13-week run. So, you know, sometimes you'll extend one or two weeks. Usually you don't double the run. So by the time that was done, it was pretty clear we had, we had a path to Broadway. So I, I want to say, like, by the third week of Chicago, I was already in deep discussions of what Broadway theater I wanted. And, and, and when you do that, there, there's a myth about Broadway theaters that, oh, producers are kicking other producers out. But, but that's not really what happens. Every show has a stop clause, meaning if you do under a certain amount of business, the theater owner on Broadway can ask you to leave because you're not living up to how much you know you should earn in that space. But most theater owners, in my experience, have been very benevolent about that, where they say, look, and I, as a producer, never want to kick another show out because I know how hard it is to keep the show running. But a lot of times, uh, theater owners might say, hey, you might want to think about closing at the end of the year. And if you do, maybe we'll give you a little break on the rent so we know we can book our next thing. And so those conversations were starting to happen. People were realizing Six was going to come in some way because it was just, it had captured the public's imagination in a way we just couldn't keep it out. The thing about musicals for me, I mean, I'm a, and it's because of Brent and, and even Bowtown and even Drowsy Chaparral. I love theaters with just one balcony or a mezzanine, as we call it. When there's not two levels, you can say orchestra and mezzanine. I just like that for sight lines and all kinds of things. So I was pretty clear I wanted, you know, two levels. And I know I felt it should be the size of Brent and the, and the Nederlander had 1,200 seats. So I was looking for that 1,100 to 1,200 um, theater and the one that was available because Waitress had decided that, you know what, they think they're going to run till the end of the year and a little bit of that year. I think it was 19. I'm sorry, 20. At the end of 20, they're going to run to the end of 19. That it made sense we come in in 20. Uh, of course, our opening night was March 12th, a day that will live in infamy for the theater industry. Uh, it was clear that was the right theater for it. I will say on the journey, I'll tell you the sizes. So Chicago Shakes was 717. We, we then had booked the same time we booked Chicago just because we had nowhere to go. And the summer is a hard time to find a theater. And I felt there wasn't going to be a Broadway theater in the year that we, uh, that we were running in 19, given the landscape of what was on Broadway at the time. So I said, look, if we can get enough, we could probably do another booking too in the summer. So we left a lot of time between Chicago and our next spot, which was supposed to be Edmonton. So what happened is while we were in Chicago and we knew we were extending, um, we then got a call from Boston because we, we had another booking in Edmonton waiting for us, like in September. 
we were going to have a break between Chicago and Edmonton. And we, we took the Edmonton booking because I said, look, you know, it's not a big touring market, so it doesn't hurt us if we do a national tour later. Edmonton is not a market we typically pick up right away. And they have a really great regional theater up there, run really, really well. The guy who runs it is terrific and does great work. So we'll just have that so anyone who does Chicago knows there'll be another job for them in another month and a half up in Edmonton. And that way we can offer them more money over the summer and get better talent and all that. And uh, as a result, Boston, ART called, Diana Paul was called, said we lost the booking of uh, what the Constitution means to me. Could we? Could you swing by? <laughs> I said, well, I mean, I have to ask the queens and, you know, you have to pay them what you typically would pay them. I mean, you're basically, it would be your production because I'm not set up for that because I'm just, you know, I'm working with Chicago Shakes on, on this version. And so we made an arrangement and we were able to go there. And by the time it hit Boston, um, everybody knew it was going to come in. I had made my deal with Chicago, but then we played Edmonton, but I couldn't get into the building before the holidays. So uh, the theater I used to run from 1997 to 2002, called the Ordway Center for the Performing Arts in St. Paul, had a holiday slot open. And I knew how valuable those holiday slots were in Minnesota because there's a lot of snow and they want to be inside and watch a show. And uh, it's a great market and one that I know well. So uh, the Ordway Center for the Performing Arts then said, we'll do it. So we went from 700 to then like 600 at ART to then like 750 at Edmonton. And then at the Ordway, we did three weeks in a 1900 seat theater. And I got to say, all those theaters were great. But the 1900-seat theater that's built like an opera house anyway in red velvet gave it so much scope and epic proportion. I was like, it reminded me of Rent. This show can play anywhere because the story is strong enough. Even though it's structured like a concert, what's so great about it is the storytelling is epic and the stakes are very high, which makes the comedy and also the heartbreak, that much more poignant. So it was, uh, it, I learned a lot about the show by playing those four markets before we came to Broadway, which also informed me on how to market the show for Broadway. What I learned from watching the show back in March, I didn't, I didn't listen to the music beforehand. I didn't really know too much about the show. I was going in completely blind, which is sometimes my favorite. I learned from throughout that, I mean, you, you know upfront whether you knew the history or not, you knew pretty much in the first like 10 minutes, what, you know, how, how it ends essentially, because we all know what happened to them. So what made it really fun for me as an audience member was to watch the journey that they were taking, watching the relationships that historically probably did not happen <laughs> or historically did not happen. Um, but to see how they were interacting with each other and, and how the story was progressing with them individually, but then also as a collective. So that, that's yeah. one of my favorite parts. I, I think one of the things that the show does, and, and, and it's, 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 we all remember every show is a silent contract we make when we enter a theater that we're going to root for whoever says it's their story. And it's it, in our obligation for a show is make sure we tell the story in an entertaining way. Otherwise, we're going to lose you, Mary, and you're going to say, I don't know what the hype is and I'm going to leave. Uh, so what we do is, 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 
everyone is complicit in making sure that we have a great shared experience. And I think what I love about this show and other shows do this. Rent does this with a direct address to the audience. Like, you know, uh, we begin at Christmas Eve, me, Mark, and my roommate, Roger, you know, uh, you know, we, we have a similar thing in another show. I did Drowsy Chaperone, which in the dark says, I hate theater. You know, you're immediately, you're inside the head of the audience. Um, and, uh, and even in the Heights, you know, Usnavi comes out, lights up on Washington Heights, up at the break of day, wake up and God chases a little punk away. So we're making those contracts in those first moments of the show and how the women enter and what they say to us is who they are. And we immediately know they're strong and a lot of stuff has gone down that they've had to endure. And yet they're here with humor and intelligence and an indomitable spirit because they're all unbreakable in the story. Yet... They are living in a world that is unfair. And we see our world through the portal of 500 years ago to put in perspective everything we're dealing with. And it's that's where this show is very not only entertaining, but healing and surprising. And uh, Mary, I think you you understand that because you've seen it. And I'm sure your listeners who haven't seen it, even if you've listened to the album, it's a very different experience when you're in that chamber watching these six powerful queens tell their story. I love listening to the way uh, you're talking about the storytelling, because uh, at least for me, when I think of producers, I think of a lot of logistics. I think of a lot of like paperwork and like contracts and stuff like that, that maybe you're dealing with. But I'm wondering if you could pull that back for us and maybe share if there's any part of the creative process that is creative for you as a producer and what you like about it in that way that might be different and defy what people might think about producers? I, I look at myself, um, if I can be bold to have a perception of myself, because we never really know what we are. Others, It's for others to determine by who chooses to be in the room with us. But I am very, very much about why we are telling the story. There are some things that have been offered to me that are like, you can make a lot of money doing this. And I'm like, I've never... First of all, it would not define me because I don't understand this. Uh, yes, I like that stuff, but it's, it doesn't it doesn't help define me. I am one of the reasons, going back to one of Mary's questions, I like working with first-time writers because I love to discover the story. Uh, I will often hear one or two songs and hear a, a pitch idea, like it's about this, and here's like a... And I always ask, well, what's your musical vocabulary? And they'll play something because, you know, a musical must have music. But also it really has to have a point of view that resonates with the time we're in or the time we're looking to be in. Um, I'm, I, I'm somebody who anticipates what I, I'm thirsty for. And part of that anticipation is just what I haven't seen ever or haven't seen in 10 years. I did a revival. I put White Christmas, well, revival, it was an original musical of White Christmas. It was a 54-year-old movie at the time I produced it but it had never been on stage. But the reason I did it is I heard a recording of what they were envisioning. They had like a huge 20 piece orchestra. I realized my generation at 59, yes, we had Annie get the gun, but we'd never heard Irving Berlin's music orchestrated that way. It had, Irving Berlin had gone to like cabaret and a club act with piano, bass and drums. And when you hear the score of White Christmas, it was like, oh, there's a reason for it to be done. And it wasn't about anything but a misunderstanding. And it was about 
uh, two people trying to fall in love against all odds and who thought they weren't really going to ever be with anybody. That had the DNA to sing. I did that because I had done Rent and I think Avenue Q I was working out at the time and I had done Del Guarda and I had done Liliana. And my kids were also uh, getting four and five at the time. And I also had another reason, like, I want to do a show that my kids wanted to go see, that could they could go see. Uh, so, I, you know, there's a lot of reasons why you do shows, but I would say that putting that show on stage was just as satisfying because we made it much more theatrical than the film and changed the story a little bit. That's a fun. Avenue Q was three songs and we made that show. Uh, Lynn brought a very, I saw a very early version of In the Heights right out of college that, that Lynn had written that was terrific. But going on that journey with Lynn and then bringing Kiara in and, and, and having that all happen was exciting. Drazi Chaperone, Canadians that nobody who were like Bob and that team are brilliant geniuses now. Bob's I'm ready for a time. sequel. Yeah, well, 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 you know, I don't want to say anything. I but know, I, I know, it's been teased. Yeah, you're obviously are, are, are being lenient in the air. There's something really interesting we're working on that I, I hope to talk to you about again. But uh, <laughs> right now, I can't say anything. So I love going back to what I do. I don't think about the contracts. The contract I think about is how we make the contract with the audience. And I always say, uh, you know, money is a tool. People are the destination. And, and a lot of producers, um, the cliche of producers, I want to say a lot of producers, because the successful producers don't think this way. It's never about, it truly, it's not, you don't take this kind of risk and think, oh, it's because I'm going to make a lot of money. You might. On average, there's a 20% chance. My track record is a lot better. And I think it's because I don't lead with money. I lead with why am I going to care about this journey? What is it that I haven't seen before? And was it? And what is it about the vocabulary of storytelling that is surprising? And, and that's kind of where I spend my time because I had the good fortune of being an actor. I lead with my vulnerability. I, I'm as a producer, I don't think about being the boss as much as having the person to open up the room, make sure the bathrooms are clean and that there's food for people to do their best work. Thank you. I mean, I thank you for saying that, because I, I think a lot of and even our listeners who are listening now might think what you've said as a cliche producer I was almost anticipating more of a structured response in terms of like there's a formula to knowing how, if things are going to work. There's a formula behind what a producer does. But it seems like, I mean, you've even just said you, you wear your heart on your sleeve and you lead with, with your passion. And I think that's huge. And I wanted to point that out for our listeners to go back um, and re-listen to the, the last five-ish, <laughs> ten-ish even... minutes. <laughs> I don't even because know what I said. I just kept blur. talking. So. <laughs> no, uh, no. I, but I think it's important because I think there's definitely a stereotype around what a producer does. And we've, I think we've only chatted with one, or, we've chatted with two producers now um, on the podcast. And each have, you know, all three of you have shared very unique experiences. Uh, you know, every person's journey is so different as we've learned um, and as we know. Uh, but to hear like your side of things and how you a approach a piece of work and communicate and work with new um, creative teams is is very refreshing. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I did want to ask a question about going back a little bit about where you were, we were talking about the different stops along the way. Knowing that the show was uh, originated from the West End, it was a very English-British story. To bring that 
that the, the story in this nursery rhyme over to American audiences um, who may or may not know like the full story. Like you said at the beginning, you maybe knew like one or two or three of their of the stories from the nursery rhymes um, and the history. Uh, what was that like with educating the audience of that of this brand? Because it was very successful overseas, but then bringing that over was that. Do you think that having the multiple stops before coming to Broadway really helped get that message across or or was it more or less just showing the people who, you know, that this is this is a, you know, a bunch of queens on stage who are celebrating, you know, female empowerment? Yeah, I think what it did is it didn't necessarily I think the people who saw the show decided to get more educated. Um, but I did something similar that we did in Rent. Um, when we first opened Rent, uh, it was very clear some of the audience weren't quite sure who Benny was or who Mimi was to Benny because in the middle of the first act that probably WOM, he's sort of like, hey, you know, I was with you last night. And Roger doesn't know. And, but Roger's stating me what happened, who's who. And we don't see Maureen until midway through act one, but we hear about her. And a lot of people don't know Boem because <laughs> it's inspired by La Boem. Uh, so we actually created a little chart in the program, uh, sort of a sort of organizational chart of Mimi, you know, Marquez, this, and uh, Roger, and she meets, and, and Mark is Roger's roommate who was dating Maureen until she met Joanne. So we created a, a, a bit of a chart, and uh, we kind of do the same thing in our program where while you're sitting down, there's no intermission in our show. So either before the show or after the show, it, Oftentimes it's after because the show surprises you and now you got to figure out what you just saw because it's just so amazing and why we have so much repeat business because it's the kind of show like Rent you can see over and over and get more and more nuance uh, on it is that uh, we kind of just lay it out there and say who's who uh, and when they lived and, you know, so it, again, it's not about the history. It's about the execution of the storytelling through a contemporary portal to make history exciting. And that's the genius of, of Six on top of just the basic wonderful craft of how they tell the story. So looking forward to Broadway's reopening, uh, what's one thing that you're looking forward to uh, for the first performance back? I, first of all, it's not Six's re reopening because we haven't opened yet. True. shuttered true. on the, I want to be really clear, we have yet to open. Yes, so we, I, are the, we are. We are. Uh, we were uh, open us, interrupt us is what we were. So we are now. We I can't wait to open. So when we start, we're going to start our pre, continue our previews. Right. I have a follow-up uh, question about opening and how you guys are handling like an, another period of previews. Yeah. You know, like I think we're all grateful because again, you know, these are brilliantly talented women who play our queens and. Um, but doing a show is a muscle, you know, it, it, these are athletes. These are uh, also emotional athletes. It's not, you know, you can play a game and, you know, be in a bad mood and still get a double, you know, and, but really to, to perform, the audience has to believe you, you know what I mean? And uh, uh, it, they're, I've talked, you know, we've talked to them all and they're excited and we're getting ready and everyone's getting back in shape and we have to check all the, connections in the theater. We've, we've made sure that, you know, theater has remained very, very clean and it's, 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 you know, monitored, uh, you know, once every week by the engineers and, 
and uh, we had to take some of the costumes out just to be sure that there would be no, you know, dampness or anything. And we've we've had some damage to some of them that we're gonna have to replace, which we'll do as soon as all the wonderful artisans return and we're getting all that scheduled. But there's a lot to do. People's feet might have grown differently, and the shoes might not be as comfortable as they once were. We'll have to relook at all that. So we're we're truly. Um, getting back into shape, but we're going to have a nice rehearsal process in, uh, in rehearsal rooms. So, you know, the first preview will look like we haven't stopped at all, but I promise you there's going to be a good, you know, we're starting now. There's at least 12 weeks of prep to make that first performance dazzle. And that'll be on September 17th. And then our opening night, we have a less of a preview process than normal. Usually it's about four weeks. We only have about two and a half weeks. And the thing I'm excited about is my colleagues on Broadway also really felt for us because it was our opening night and they know how special opening nights are. So we are going to be the first opening night uh, of a musical for the beginning, the, re the beginning of Broadway again. And uh, uh, so having that place in history is exciting for us as well, since we're about history. And uh, reluctantly, we became part of Broadway history by more than just being hopefully a show that captures the public's imagination. We've also become that show that was shuttered on our opening night, but yet the community honored that we should be the first show to open for the new season. So that's, uh, I'm very grateful for that. I know we're still many months away and so many things can change so quickly, but what can theater goers expect from a Broadway opening night post COVID? I think excitement, joy. I think theater goers are people who are care enough about each other to get vaccinated so that everybody can enter the chamber feeling safe and, and feel good about making the choice to show up in their community as strangers so they can leave, you know, an hour and a half to two hours later as a, as a connected group of individuals who become community. So I think that's the power of Broadway. Um, I am honored to be a part of it and, and do what I can to, to promote it and create environments where people can form families against their odds, uh, both on stage and in the chamber, watching whatever piece of theater they want to watch. Um, I think it's going to be a very exciting time, but not just the first night, not just the second night. I think we have a renewed um, gratitude for the things that other human beings give us to make life special. And, you know, we've heard a few things about people's bad behavior on airplanes. The good news about the theater is you don't have to go to the theater because you have to get somewhere. You go to the theater because you know it will enhance your life and the journey you take is much more spiritual and emotional. So I don't think we're gonna have those issues, but I think hopefully people are gonna be even more courteous. Maybe you'll think twice about bringing a whole chicken dinner in your purse and eating during the show. I'm looking forward to people thinking a little bit more about that because you're just making the actors hungry when you do that. Um, of course I tease, but uh, I, I'm hoping we actually get less rude behavior because this was getting a little loud in between technology and people thinking they can shake their ice or whatever during a quiet moment. And it's going to be up to the real theater going lovers to like educate people on how to reapproach and, and enter these rooms with grace and appreciation for everyone. The actors will be vaccinated. People backstage will be vaccinated. We're doing our part to make people feel safe and, and hopefully the theater goers will, will follow suit. And uh, 
you know, the tourism looks good as long as we don't have a variant or anything to knock us off our axis. By 2023, we should be very close to normal. I think uh, it's going to be a little tough, and that's why the federal government has helped us to get on SFOG, which is Shuttered Venue Operational Grants, which I worked on and, and very grateful to senators on both aisles because they knew Broadway's the longest street in America, and we add so much economy to the communities when, you know, Wicked comes and plays six weeks or, you know, six was even in Chicago, Boston, Edmonton, which isn't America yet, uh, and uh, St. Paul. So, you know, it's it's always, uh, and of course I joke about Edmonton because Canadians love humor about themselves as well. So uh, it's, it's I'm, I'm very excited about the future of the Broadway theater and Broadway tours. And I think communities around the world are going to be very excited about what is known as a Broadway musical for, for many, many years coming out of this pandemic. I mean, I've heard from talking with some other creatives um, on other shows that have not yet opened who were either in rehearsal process or in preview in the, during previews before the shutdown that they have actually creative teams have gotten together over Zoom, of course, to make some changes. And I'm wondering, since you guys were so close to opening, <laughs> if if there were any changes or any conversations about anything to tweak or alter or add um, or to reconsider during the last several months. Is anything like that happened to the development of the show? Uh, not, not really with the show itself. Obviously, our advertising, we took an ad out on uh, March 12th to remind people we were the show that shuttered and we did it to uh, Heart of Stone was the soundtrack, uh, which had the message of we're unbreakable. And, you know, we basically, because we were the show that shuttered on our opening night, um, the ethic of, you know, Broadway's Unbreakable 6, basically saying we, we're the kind of show that reminds everybody you're unbreakable. So we used our message of what our show was innately about to try to heal us while we were waiting for a time when we could gather again. So we tried to be a salve as well as be an attraction. And we were blessed with a show similar to Mrs. Doubtfire, which ends with a wonderful message of as long as there is love. These shows do offer guidance if you listen to what they're about and why you're producing them. And and, and if it is about love conquering all, uh, they usually have a message to guide you to be your North Star. And I'm fortunate enough both Doubtfire and Six had that North Star that we all could work with while we were waiting to... Uh, get the okay that we could start selling tickets and think about reopening. But we didn't change the show uh, of six at all. Um, we changed it a little bit coming to America where I was say today, hopefully I offered some, some points of view, but Toby and Lucy are so smart. They knew what to do. I just said, yeah, that's great. <laughs> it's really, and also it's <laughs> rare because I usually start a show from scratch. So, you know, truly mm. I, I don't, I, I my, so much of producing in terms of what a producer does, you also have to know when to engage and when to just get out of the way and be grateful. And there was a lot of that for me on six, of just getting out of the way and being grateful and making sure that I was doing everything I can to give the best odds that the show could capture the public's imagination. So we're going to move into our lightning round. And this round, it's really just, uh, you can take as long as you want. You don't have to answer it in lightning speed. But um, we're just not going to respond. We're just going to go from question to question rather quickly. I'll do my best. I, I, like, I, like, a, I like a good round. 
<laughs> what are three adjectives that describe your ideal working environment? Creative, passionate, comedic. Is there something in your process as a producer that you find unique to you? People think I over talk. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> what is one job in the theater industry that you would trade jobs with for just one week? Conductor. Haven't gotten that one before. No, I, like I that. haven't. Uh, what is one hobby you have outside of theater? Golf. Do you have any books or resources that you find helpful to you in your process or maybe as you were coming up in the industry? Uh, I'm a big fan of the gifts of imperfection and anything John Irving ever wrote. What is one thing in the theater industry that confuses you? Podcasts about the theater asking me confusing questions. <laughs> We're leaving that one in. <laughs> I, I really love that question, though, because I love watching our guests' reactions to that question because it really stumps everybody. Well, I think here's the problem, and I'll, you can put this in the broadcast. Here's the problem with that question. Those of us who have been in the theater for as long as I've been in the theater, which is not, you know, with an actor, and I, so I'm like 59, so I've been performing. I've been a professional getting paid to do what I do in the theater since I was like 17, 16 years old. It's a bit of a Stockholm syndrome. It's so confusing, but you've just immersed yourself in it for so long. That's just the way we do it, which is why it is so hard to really explain this business as a business to anybody who's actually in business in any other business. So we are, it's the Stockholm syndrome. It's all, it's just how we do it. Is it broken? Absolutely. Could it be better? Yes. Will it change? That's the drama of the theater. Maybe not. That's a great answer. And Mary, you want to ask the final question? Yes. Okay. So this is our final question for you. What's your favorite part of the development process of a new show? My favorite part of the process of a new show development for a musical specifically, because I've done some plays, but let's just talk about musicals is the Sitzbrook, which is when we play the music with the orchestra. It's the first time the orchestra comes together with the actors. And that's why I would trade places with the conductor because it's just magic. It's exhilarating. Yeah. I've got goosebumps thinking about the first one of the first show back. Amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, thank and, you. and it's my pleasure. Thank you for your passion and your interest. And if anyone, if you need to explain what a sits probe is, uh, I understand for people. And that's different than a Vonder probe. A yes. Vonder probe, you do it from the stage. A sits probe, you kind of are outside of the uh, chamber. Amazing. When you do it. Yeah. Well, uh, if you just want to shout out again, how can people find you? Are you on any social media for them to follow or the show's social media? Uh, here's the thing, folks, about me. I've actually never had a Facebook page, a Twitter page, a Snap, Crackle, or a Pop page. Um, I do have my shows and my kids and my wife tell me what I need to know, and it gives me more time to keep producing shows. So, But uh, my, you know, my show's uh, you know, six, the musical um, is Doubtfire. We start previewing. Six on September 17, we start previewing Doubtfire on October 21, and we're about to announce when we're going to start previewing the play that goes wrong off Broadway, and that's sort of what I've been up to uh, since uh, since we've been allowed to get back into the theater and get those shows up. Well, thank you again so much for being the first uh, guest to kick off this series on Six. Uh, well, looking you. forward to Broadway's reopening and your official opening of Six in October. <laughs> the, the, the official opening of Six, which will be the first opening of the Broadway season.
Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Page to Stage. To keep up with us, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Page to Stage Podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, we have other episodes with theater makers from Six the Musical. Check them out. Until next time. That's Brian. That's Mary. We'll see you later. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.